Okay, good morning, everyone. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon us sinners. Amen. Again, we pray. O Lord, our God, whose compassion is the cause of our fearing and loving your name, mercifully pour your grace into our hearts, that we, casting away what displeases you, may be united to you with an honest will. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Sorry, I prayed the prayer from the Leonine Sacramentary instead of the collect for the day, but that's okay. It was a good prayer. Uh, all right, the verse for this week is from the book of Song of Solomon, chapter 4, Song 4-7. Let's speak this together. You are all fair, my love, and there is no spot in you. First thing I'm going to say is this. If you've not actually sat down and read the Song of Solomon, do it. It's a beautiful book, and it's one that's often overlooked because there are better books to read than that one. But this is a fantastic book. You should read it. If you want to know what Jesus thinks of you, read this book. Because the entire dial, this book is sort of like a play, a poetic play almost. You've got lines with lines that go between the, the beloved and the woman. And they talk to each other, and it's just a big love story. But the reason why it's in the Bible, because some might say, well, it doesn't talk really about Jesus at all, doesn't really say his name, doesn't really say much about anything. It's just these two people in love. And then you say, okay, but that's the point because the whole book is about the bride, the church, and the bridegroom who is Christ. So if you want to know what Jesus thinks of you, read the book of Song of Solomon, and then you'll hear all of the flowery language that he uses to describe how beautiful you are, how beautiful his church is, and how much he loves it. And then you'll hear the words that you get to speak that describe who you are and what you should say to the Lord whom you love as well. So, now here, you, we have to establish first who's speaking. This is the bridegroom who's speaking. The bridegroom is speaking, and of course, we know that the bridegroom is Christ, but it is important for the catechism for today that you understand this as the bridegroom talking to you who is the bride, and who is the, whoops, who is the bride? Yeah, so bridegroom to bride, and we'll put this in parentheses, the, the deeper meaning, Christ to the church with a capital C because it's the whole church, not just the body. You are all fair. What does fair mean? Okay, yes, but that's not the meaning that this... Fair has a lot of different definitions. That is a correct one, just not the one that this verse uses. I'm thinking more like beautiful or comely. Uh, yes, good. yes, beautiful. You are fair. You are beautiful. Um, and when you say, like, think of med the medieval language, or think of, like, King Arthur and his knights. Ah, I beheld with mine eyes a fair maiden. And when they say, I saw a fair maiden, they're not saying, well, I saw a girl and she looked okay. Huh? I don't know. I'd take her to a movie, I guess, maybe once or twice. You know, you know it's, it's about fair in the sense of stunning beauty. Fair is perfect beauty. Could it be uh, attitude or um, 
this uh, yes. Yes, but I would say if you're going to use that kind of language that you describe it as a fairness of you are you are fair in that you look pretty and you are pretty. You know, the, or like you're beautiful on the outside and on the inside. Uh, and the person who's beautiful outside and beautiful on the inside is more beautiful on the outside even than what they look like with their features because of you know, the beauty of their soul. Who, who are you? And there are some really objectively beautiful people who are also objectively really ugly because who they are is so ugly that it completely masks any physical beauty. So you are all fair. You're actually, you're beating me to the, to the punch here. To say that you are all fair, don't apologize for doing it. I'm glad. It means that you're thinking. Uh, you are all fair, which means you don't just look pretty, but you are pretty. It's not the way you look, it's the way you are. It's not just what the inside is like, it's what the inside is. You are all fair, wholly fair. Inside and out, my love. This is important too because this is your title. My love, my beloved. And you are fair and there is no spot in you. So these go together. For you to be fair means that there is no spot in you. It's uh, expanding and expounding upon it. And for you to have no spot, this is taking it at its theological level, what does no spot sound like? No defect. Okay, no defect, yes, yes, yes. What does that, but what should that remind you of? No spot, no defect. Yes. But you're not saying it right. It is Jesus. Colder. Think of, think of, in what sense is Jesus without spot, without blemish? Yes, the lamb. The reason why you have to think of it like the lamb is because the whole language of no spot and blemish is sacrificial. Because the lamb or the goat, it could be a goat too, but whatever, the lamb or the kid that you take to sacrifice, not child, kid, baby goat. The lamb or the kid that you take to sacrifice has to be without blemish, without spot. So the theological context of this, the bridegroom, if Christ is the one who is speaking and Christ says that you have no spot in you, by whose virtue is it that you are without spot? By Christ. So this is the language of sacrifice, the language of the crucifixion. You are my beloved, and I come to you, and you are without spot because I have cleansed you. I have redeemed you. Think about the, the account of Ruth and Boaz. Who redeems Ruth? Boaz redeems Ruth. He brings her into the fold. Uh, this is what the bridegroom does for the bride. You have no spot because Christ has no spot. It's not that he looks at you and says, you know, you are just perfect, and I love you because you're perfect. That's not it. Uh, this is also, by the way, I hate the cliche phrase, God loves me just the way I am. God accepts me just the way I am. Because he doesn't. If he loves you and accepts you just the way you are, it means that he doesn't care about sin. You say, well, the Lord will accept me just the way I am. And you say, 
The Lord will accept you in spite of who you are, and the Lord loves you in spite of who you are. That's the better way to say it, because the Lord doesn't actually love you the way you are. If the Lord loved you the way that you are, he wouldn't give you a means by which you are further perfected. But the Lord says, I love you, even though you're a mess, uh, and because I love you and because you're a mess, I am going to work to make you acceptable in my sight. The Lord loves you. You're kind of like a fixer-upper. And that's not a, you know, it's not a demeaning thing. Nobody wants the fixer-upper. But uh, Jesus says, I love you, and I love you so much that I want you to be acceptable. I want my dad to love you, too. Okay? I, I'm going to bring you home to dad, and I want dad to say, marry that girl. So I need to, you know, you need to be a little less messy. Okay. So Jesus, uh, Jesus says, hey, listen, I love you, and I love you so much I want you to be perfect. Because you're not perfect right now, but I want you to be, and I want you to be perfect because I love you. And being perfect is going to be so great for you, and I want everything that's good for you. So come along with me, and I'll help make you perfect. Okay? Let's speak this again. You are all fair, my love, and there is no spot in you. Okay, what does God's word say to husbands? Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Husbands, love your wives. How do you love your wives? You treat them the way Christ treats the church. How do you know what it looks like to love your wife? Look to Christ. The way that Christ loves the church, you are to love your wife. Will you love your wife the way that Christ has loved the church? Do you love your wife because of who she is? Yes and no. I mean, obviously, you wouldn't have married your wife, husbands, if you didn't love her for who she was. And part of marriage, you know, this is the reason why, yes, Luther, in the Book of Concord, says that marriage can rightly be called a sacrament, is because there is a level of divine grace afforded in marriage that is not afforded anywhere else. You take your wife the way that she is, and you love her for who she is, and you afford her grace where other people wouldn't. And Christ, you love her for Christ's sake, though. When she really irritates you, you, you know, if, if love is nothing but a feeling where you say, well, I love you because you're so beautiful. I love you because you do this. I love, then that's not actually love. That's something called uh, using. There's love and then there's enjoyment. Enjoyment is using something so that you get pleasure. Loving something is in, uh, loving them for the sake that they exist. For, or for the fact that they exist, loving them for the sake of Christ. Morris. This reminds me, or vice versa, <coughs> of the song, the Laura's theme from Dr. Chivago, Somewhere My Love. Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. Beautiful song. Yes. Yes, good. Um, yes? Oh, don't you worry. I'm getting there. <laughs> uh, I will get to that, yes. So, 
you, you are to love your wives and you are to love them in the same manner as Christ loves his church, which is unconditional. Uh, and also do not be harsh with them, which means how are you to speak to your wife? If your love is modeled after Christ's love, how are you to speak to your wife? Yes. Let's, but if your love is modeled after Christ and rooted in Christ, you love as Christ, then when you speak, how do you speak? Love as Christ, speak as Christ. You're, see, you're, this is my problem. You're all right, and I have to give you credit for being right, but you're just not saying it the way I want you to say it is the problem. So, I mean, you know, let's have a little give and take here. Try to read my mind a little bit better, would you please? <laughs> so, um, you, so, you love as Christ, but you also speak as Christ. So, if Christ speaks like this to his, wife, to his bride, the church, you are all fair, my love. There's no spot in you. Then that's how you ought to be speaking to your wife. Not, not harshly. So, yes, be considerate as you live with your wives. Treat them with respect as the weaker partner. Really, the bottom line is, is if, if you ever thought men were better than women, this is your passage. I'm kidding. <laughs> but that's what people think that it means. They look and say, well, look, uh, the man is the one in charge here. You're the weaker one. Uh, you can't do the things that we can do. Or my muscles are bigger. I don't know, whatever you want to say. But men are better than women. Well, they're not. And all that it takes is getting married. And that ought to humble you right down as a man when you realize, I'm certainly not better than my wife because I have a whole lot of weaknesses. And without my wife... They've been pointed out to you. <laughs> I'm not saying anything about that. I'm not even going to touch it. <laughs> That's something for the office in a counseling session. <laughs> okay. No, but in all seriousness, what it means to say that the wife is the weaker partner is to say that the wife is not the one who is the head of the household. She's, she's weaker only in the sense that she doesn't have the same level of authority in the household that the husband does. And then what this means to say, because the wife is the weaker partner, authority-wise, doesn't say she doesn't have authority, the wife is number two, though. She's just not number one. But because she is the weaker of the partners, then you better be sure to treat her with respect. Because what's the temptation if you say, well, the man's the head of the household? Well, then you start getting into the dangerous waters of, hey, fix me a turkey pot pie. You know? And that's not the way that you're to treat your wife. So if you treat your wife harshly, or if you have to play that, well, I'm the head of the household, car. you do what I say, woman. You know, if that's the way that you're treating your wife, then you better come and you better repent. Because that is not how you are called to be as a husband. I mean, look at the way Christ treats the church in love, in, in patience. And if Christ will treat his bride like that and you refuse to treat your bride like that, you are the one who is at fault. It doesn't really matter what your wife has done. If you are the one who responds by treating her that way, it is you. This is why, by the way, the whole thing that St. Paul says about wives submit to your husbands. Well, everybody gets in the world. Everybody gets their undies in a bundle because it says submit. Oh, no, we're, we're feminist women. We're independent and we're strong and we can do it. You, we don't need any man. We're not going to submit to any man. Well, there's a problem there. But submitting to your husband, yes, it's hard. And we'll, that's the verse for next time with, with the catechism, so we don't need to talk about that now. 
But it is much harder for the husband to love his wife the way Christ loves the church. It is easier to submit to the husband than it is for the husband to love the wife. Because it doesn't say anything about the same things that the husband is to do with the wife. The husband is, not, is to overlook faults, overlook grievances, overlook all of this, ignore everything, and do nothing but in humility and kindness and compassion take care of his wife. And that is harder to do than simply submitting. And, by the way, ladies, it is a lot easier to submit when your husband is actually someone who cares about you and loves you in that way. This is why love and obedience are the same thing. It's really easy to obey the one who loves you when you love him and you know that he has your best interests. It's, you'll just listen to the sermon today. That's kind of what it's about. But if, if Jesus comes to you and says, hey, follow me, you say, yes, okay. Why? You're obedient to him. You're submitting to Christ. But why is it easy for you to do it? Because Christ treats you with love because you know that Christ is never going to hurt you, and that's the way a husband must behave. If you are hurting your wife in any way, you know, I'm not talking about like physical abuse only, I'm talking if you're saying words or speaking harshly to your wife and, and it is causing harm to her of any sort, you are not being a husband. If you, if you use this verse, say you're the weaker partner, I'm the, I'm the husband, you do what I say. If that's how you use that verse, then you don't understand it and you're not being a Christian husband. And that's the bottom line. Yes, Bill? Christ gave his life for the church. Yes, Christ gave his life for the church. And look how, look how the church behaved. The church was the one that killed him. And he still gave his life for her. Yes. Indeed. Okay, any questions about this? With any, uh, I would propose that with any authority, there is so much responsibility. Yes. So consequently, the husband in this discussion has, is so responsible for the relationship with the husband and wife and in the rest of the family also. Yeah, being father and husband has a lot of responsibilities with it. And of course, because of course, I should say, in the words, in the words of the immortal Uncle Ben, with great power comes great responsibility. It's from a comic book, but it's true. Peter Parker's advice, that's Spider-Man if you don't know. Uh, with great power comes great responsibility. With great authority... The pastor has great responsibility. Your, the husband has great responsibility. Secular realm, the president of the United States has great responsibility because there's great power. It works with any kind of position of authority. Okay, any other questions? I'm sorry you're just sitting down, but now it's time to go. <laughs> time to go to Sunday school. We have a lot to do today, and we don't have a lot of time to do it. It's a hymn Sunday. There's a handout in the back. It's green because the printer ran out of toner. And uh, I didn't, I forgot about it when I got to church here. And I went to print and realized we were out of toner. So it's all in green for you because I didn't want to go without giving you a handout. Um, yes, and th an extra special thanks to our 
wonderful church secretary, Jennifer Bierman, because the toner was out and she took the files home for the bulletin and the newsletter and she took care of that all from her house so that we would have a bulletin and a newsletter. So she is very devoted to all of you. Um, here's, I'm gonna wheel this in because of course, I've set the precedent now that hymn, sun, hymn Sundays have to be multimedia. Um, we'll talk about that in a second. What I want to talk about first is this book. And the reason I want to talk to you about this book is because I want to show you why I say that paganism is the state religion of the United States and why, it, and, and use this book as further proof to you of the fact that paganism is so prevalent and prevalent in ways that you don't even realize. So here's gonna be an eye-opening moment for you. The other day my wife came to me and said, I need you to burn this book. And I said, what book? And she handed this to me. Look at how pretty this is. Escape into cottagecore. Embrace cozy countryside comfort in your everyday. Doesn't that sound nice? Look, there's even a steaming pie there. There's some teapots. Find happiness in the natural world. Be fully present where you are and free yourself from the expectations of others. Full practical advice covering topics from home decor, herbology, eating with the seasons, mindfulness. Look at that. Country living in your home. Now that sounds kind of nice, doesn't it? Well, she handed me this book and she said, I need you to burn this. I think that's the only way that we can handle this book. And I said, what? She said, you have to burn it. It's an, it, this is an evil book. And I, I'm not going to give it away or sell it or just throw it in the trash because somebody else might take it and I don't want them to. We have to burn it. And I said, why are you spending all my money on books we got to burn? No, I didn't say that. <laughs> I said, well, uh, what's wrong with it? It doesn't look that... Look, I mean, look, this is the... Look at that. Okay? Well, I'll show you. Let's go to the table of contents. Look, it's even published by HarperCollins. Big name publishing house. Introduction. Mindfulness. Home. Fashion. Gardening. Food. Outdoor life. Herbology. Magic and enchantments. And I kid you not. And then it just skips from magic and enchantment back to culture, entertaining, and final thoughts. Magic and enchantment is just slipped right in there as if that's an everyday part of country living. Now all of you country folk, maybe you know something that I don't know. And maybe I'm a little less country small town folk than I thought I was because I didn't realize that part of living in the country meant that you had to be practicing magic and casting enchantments. Maybe that's my fault. But I suspect that it's news to you as it was news to me. Well, let's look at this here, page 158. Here we go. So certainly this can't be. There is an air of enchantment within Cottagecore. For some, this means a journey into the world of magic and witchcraft. For others, it means taking inspiration from fairy tales and fantasy in the way they view the world. The realms of magic and witch the realms of magic and witchcraft are rich and wonderful to explore. Do not ever 
explore. Because what will happen to you if you explore? What will happen to you if you dabble? You will be sucked down. When you explore, you will get lost. You will go further down and further out. So use the opposite of the way Aslan says you're supposed to walk. Further up and further in, he says. But you use this, you go further down and further out. Uh, the term magic is widely used to differentiate the practice of spiritual magic. You spell it with a K, C-K at the end, because magic with just a C at the end is card tricks. Openly admits, we're talking about spiritual magic, casting spells and hexes and enchantments. I am going to burn this book. Because it's the only thing to do with it. What do you do with a book like that? It's demonic. But I'm, I'm showing you this instead of burning it right away, because this is not even, I, I've got a lot of top shelf books in my office. But even those are not as dangerous as this book. Do you want to know why? Yes, because this is a wolf in sheep's clothing. This is, this is demonic witchcraft disguised as something that you could bring into your home. At least all of the books that sit on my top shelf have the nads to call themselves what they are. This doesn't. And the worst part of this is that it assumes this is part of your normal life. Oh yeah, everybody knows that if you live in the country, you want to practice seances and hold ceremonies for witchcraft and, you know, monitor the seasons, of course, and go out on the solstices, have your black masses and all that. Of course, yeah, that's just what we do, right? This is dangerous. This is really dangerous. And you know who's going to get, who, who, not going to, but who is getting this stuff? Kids. Your kids. I mean, look at this. This is the perfect book for a young woman, probably in her first home, maybe has one child, maybe has a couple more, early on in the marriage. Oh, this is a great thing. It'll help me have, have some thoughts in here about housekeeping and maybe decor and how to tend my garden a little bit better and all of that. Oh, it's nice, which is the whole reason that my wife bought it. And it's disguised in here. This is your kids and maybe your grandchildren that are going to be getting this because of how it looks, because of the subject material, and then they're going to open it up and it's going to be not what they thought it was. Now, if they're smart and careful, they'll burn it too, but many of them aren't. Many of them take that and say, oh yeah, well, this is actually kind of a nice little part of the lifestyle. You know, it, it helps me focus. It's a, it's a nice form of devotion, sort of like yoga. I'm not saying yoga in and of itself is bad. Like going and doing some stretching is fine. But when you go to the real hard yoga places, when they are ringing the bells and doing the bows, and there is a whole spiritual aspect to yoga, which is also bad. My brother is a black belt in karate, Shorin Ru karate. And he worked really hard at that. And when he first started doing karate, uh, 
there, at the beginning and the end of every one of his karate lessons, the whole group would be led by the sensei in getting down on their hands and knees and bowing to the different corners of their dojo, <coughs> bowing to the big statue that they had there, and then bowing to one another. And it was all about bowing to the spirits. And my brother, when he found that out, he wouldn't do it. And he got in trouble at first at the beginning because he wouldn't do it. And he says, if you believe that there are spirits of the, of the winds and spirits of, of the martial arts and spirits in every single one of us that we have to bow down to and pay homage to, I'm not going to do it. He was in middle school. I mean, he was like a seventh grade or sixth grader. He wouldn't do it. I said, well, this is how we show respect. And he said, I don't, I'm not going to show respect to any spirits. I'll show respect to you by giving you a nice firm handshake, but I'm not going to show respect to any kind of spirits you think are flying around. See, if you're, and I'm doing that to brag about my brother just a little bit. Because, you know, raise up your children in the way they should go so that when they're old they do not depart from it. Teach your kids. Talk about this stuff. You can't hide from paganism because it's here. It's here already. America is not Christian. America is pagan. Uh, and something like this proves it, but it's so... I mean, look at it. It's harmless. It's all about magic. So that's how I wanted to start. As a warning to you, I'm not trying to be doom and gloom here, but paganism is around you, and that's what it looks like. Be very, be very careful. Be very, very careful. This is one reason why, by the way, I want to start this library at our church, because so much of what's out there, and I'm not saying that the Mound City Library is going out and, hey, well, what, is the recent, you know, what are the best books on paganism we could, we could get? I'm not saying that the Mound City Library is doing that, but because uh, we're still in a bubble here in Mound City, which is glorious. I said to somebody, I think heaven's going to be a lot like Mound City. <laughs> and I'm not joking. I actually mean that sincerely. I, that's how highly I think of this, of this town and, and the people here. I, th I really do think it's great, and it's a bubble in a world of chaos. That doesn't mean the chaos isn't coming, but it's sort of set apart. And you go to some place like the St. Joseph Library, and no offense to those that live in St. Joseph, but you're going to find stuff like this there because they are not, they just want to have books. But having a, a, a sanctum, a sanctuary of, a haven of, good reading, of morals, of Christian teaching, of uh, history, all of this stuff, and a lot of stuff that people don't want you to read, things that are going to learn for you and for your kids. That's why I want to have this here as a resource so that you have an alternative, so that when you find more and more that books are like this, where do you go to find something to read? Where do you go to learn? You can come here. The church will serve you in that avenue as well. So, yeah, be very, very, very careful. Nothing is exactly what it seems. Bill. Uh, <clears throat> I caught a segment on Good Morning America this morning. The commanding general of the Colorado National Guard, who recently promoted as a woman, but that wasn't the issue. That's an issue, but that's not the issue that I'm going to talk about. The issue I want to talk about is that with her promotion, she came out and uh, it publicly spoke and said that she was uh, homosexual, lesbian, and Good Morning America was very complimentary of her personal strength to come out and do that. 
As if any of that matters. That's always the thing that gets me. Can you do your job? Then what business is it of anyone else's who you take to bed? I mean, let's be, let's be real for a minute. I'm not trying to be offensive here, but can you do your job? Then, what, then why does it matter? I remember a couple years ago, New York City was so proud because they unveiled their pride police car. This big, giant, rainbow-painted monstrosity. And that was, it was like a regular old police interceptor. Why does it matter? What does that have to do with being a police officer? I, 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 yes? Oh, yeah. Because, I'll tell you, this is why it matters. Because it isn't a choice, it's an identity. It's this whole play of, you know, the identity politics game. Who are you? What group do you belong to? It's all about your identity. What's your identity? See, well, there's nothing new under the sun. As St. Paul says, you don't have any identity, you. You don't have an identity but Christ. See, what's your identity? Oh, Christ is my identity. See, well, that's unacceptable. Anyway, that's not what we're here to talk about. Next thing. Of course, I have to have art up to disguise the hymn that I have in the background hiding. This is the gospel text for today from Luke chapter 5. This is the calling of the disciples, the first apostles. And notice a few things. Now, in Luke's account, he only talks about one person in the boat. He only names one person in the boat with Jesus, and that's who? Peter. Peter, yeah. Simon, whose surname was Peter. So he's in the boat. But then when they go out into the deep, it says, so Jesus told them to let down their nets from their boat. And Simon, or, and they let down the net. He told Simon, do it, and then they let down the net. Singular, not nets, plural. There's two boats, but it's Peter's boat that's getting the fish. So who is the other person in the boat with Peter? This I think you get in Matthew's gospel, but this is a test to see if you know. I'll give you a hint. It's Peter's brother, Andrew. Andrew, yes. Patron saint of the country, the country of my blood, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yes, so Andrew's there too. And one of the Gospels, it isn't, it isn't Luke, I think it's also Matthew, records that the disciples are going out two by two, or that they go out into the water two by two, and then when Jesus sends them out, he sends them out two by two, which is really a neat thing the Gospels tying into the book of Genesis. It's a new creation, a new order. Um, this is Peter. You can tell that it's Peter because he's the one who's right up front. Jesus is the one who talks to him personally. Hey, take your boat and go do this. Luke's Gospel is all about Peter. You'll notice of all of the Gospels, the Gospel of John is probably the most unfair to Peter because John and Peter had somewhat of a rivalry. Mark's Gospel is really, really harsh too about the denial and the betrayal and all of that. Mark really doesn't have patience for the disciples that ran away. And, I, and he indicts himself on that a little bit too because Mark was the one that ran away naked in the garden. Um, Matthew's gospel talks about Peter just sort of matter-of-factly. But Luke's point here is the reason that he talks about Peter differently. He doesn't make a big deal about the betrayal. He shows how sorry Peter was about the betrayal. And then he changes the, like the order of the transfiguration. It's not James 
and John and Peter, it's Peter, James, and John. Why? Why is, why is uh, or Peter, John, and James, excuse me. Why is Peter first and why, is, why does he change it and put John second? Because the book of Acts is the other book that Luke wrote. And the book of Acts is all about the beginnings of the church. And who is the guy who's in charge? Peter. And who's his right-hand man? John. It's funny. It's like, do you ever see those photographs of the get-along t-shirt? Like when the two kids are fighting and then the mom puts them in their get-along shirt and it's like a big triple XL t-shirt and they have to wear it together. So they're stuck in this t-shirt and they have to spend their afternoon stuck in the get-along t-shirt. <laughs> yeah, well, Peter and John were kind of like that, always fighting. And then Jesus said, hey, you guys are going to be in charge of the church now. So here, put, a, put on your get-along t-shirt because you guys have to go get along together. Okay? So here's Jesus. He's calling them. There's the rest of these, these four, the ones with the halos, the, the nimbuses. But then here's the really cool thing about this woodcut. Do you see what's happening in the background? Here's a lady with a halo, which means that's who? Mary. Here's a man with a beard and a halo, and his halo has little rays coming out of it, which means that's who? Nope. Jesus. It's Jesus. Jesus is in two places here. It's art. Don't worry about it. So Jesus is here calling them, and he's also here. And do you see this servant? What does the servant have? Can you see that far away? Filling jugs with water. What's going on in here? There's a banquet. There's a party. What is this? That's the miracle. The miracle at Cana, which John says was the first miracle. Yeah, and the disciples believed him. So he comes out here and he calls them and they follow him. And then he does the miracle and they say, oh, now we believe him. So, but all of this is happening together in the one woodcut, which I think is just really neat. Albrecht Durer. I, th I thought it was, but it isn't. I actually don't know who it is. Albrecht Durer has his, he has his own seal in his woodcuts. And I looked for it and I tried to find who had done this and I, I couldn't. So as far as I know, this is an anonymous woodcut from Germany from, I think, the 17th century. And then there's this one, which is older. This is a mosaic from Ravenna. Ravenna is really important because Ravenna was the capital of the Western Roman Empire for a time. But Ravenna ended up becoming part of the Byzantine. So Byzantine Christianity was there. This is a mosaic. The churches in Ravenna have beautiful mosaics. And this is, you can see, there's Peter, and then there's Andrew, and Jesus is there calling them. See, their net is full of fish. Now, here's something funny. You see this little, this weird kind of fish right there? What's that doing? Why is it not in the net? I talked about this in a newsletter article once a long, long time ago. There's a little thing in iconography from the Byzantine era. They put that little fish in. Part of what that little fish is, is he's to symbolize the sea. The what? To symbolize the sea. He's like the spirit of the sea. S-E-A-C? Yeah, S-E-A, the sea. <coughs> or like Leviathan, the, the great fish. So it shows that the Lord is the one who has dominance over the waters. And here they are. There's Jesus, and there's the spirit of the sea. There's the Lord's dominion. And then in between the Lord's dominion, and the person of the Lord in Christ, they're catching the fish. Yes, Rhonda? Back here, it looks like a squirrel surfboarding away. A squirrel surfboarding away. Yeah, I can't see 
<laughs> Jesus is getting sporty. Uh, that's a good question. I think that that's one of the other disciples. Hi, sweetheart. Who is watching you? Come, come here. Come here. Yeah, that's okay. Okay, now, two. Okay, you go go to mommy. Uh, okay, now the hymn. The hymn for this month is "Thee Will I Love, My Strength, My Tower." It's number six ninety four in the hymnal. You probably know this hymn. I think it's a TLH tune. Uh, the text of this was written by a fellow named Johann Scheffler, and, cool story, that I actually just discovered this morning while I was recording the service for the podcast, the hymn of the day today, our office hymn, is 688, Come Follow Me, the Savior Spake. You know that one. Come follow me, the Savior Spake. Uh, and look who wrote that. Johann Scheffler. Same guy. I don't know how many hymns he has in the LSB because I forgot to look, but he has at least two. So, Thee Will I Love, My Strength, My Tower, this one and uh, the hymn of the day for today both appear in the sanctification section of the hymnal, which is sort of about Christ working in you and you living like a Christian. This began as a sacred poem. It was written in eight stanzas, and uh, we'll get to, you can see what happens in translation when you count how many stanzas there are, because there aren't eight. Uh, this guy, here's a, a fun story, kind of sad about this Scheffler fella. He was born in 1624 in Breslau, in Silesia, which is now part of Poland. He was, the, he was born the son of a man who was a staunch Lutheran, very, very, very devout Lutheran. And he was part of this this or, the Orthodox Lutheran movement. So, like the Lu most Lutheran of the Lutheran, nothing else is good. We're only going to do it this way. This is the only way. That's right. Lutheran, 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 Lutheran. That kind. Like uh, Gerhard. Gerhard's great. Johann Gerhard, the theologian, he's great. But sometimes he's a little too black and white, cut and dry. That's the the golden age of Lutheran Orthodoxy. Um, so. That's where he grew up. That's the, the church that he attended was just very <laughs> Lutheran. And then he went off to college and went to the university at Strasbourg. To, he was going to go into medicine. He did go into medicine. So he was studying medicine at the university and started reading mystics. Do you know about mysticism and mystic theology? Good. Mystic theology can be really cool and really good. One of my favorite theologians is a mystic theologian, St. Teresa of Avila. Ask Saoirse sometime where St. Teresa is and she'll run in my office. She knows just where St. Teresa sits on the bookcase. She'll go bring her to you. St. Teresa of Avila is one of my favorite mystic theologians. Mysticism in the context of Christianity can be good and when it's good, it is very good. It is excellent, but it can also be very bad because it also has the, a very strong temptation to lean towards enthusiasm. What mysticism is, is locating God and having almost an experience with God in the Christian life, in contemplation, in devotion, in prayer. 
So mysticism is less about looking at things black and white and saying, now who is God and what is he made of and who does this and blah, 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 and more about, hey, let's just learn about God by praying. Let's have an encounter with God in the sacraments. Let's just sit and be quiet for a minute and talk to God and we'll learn about him that way. Learn about God that way. Sitting quietly, that, that way. Yeah. We'll sit quietly, we'll contemplate, we'll think about God, we'll have long periods where we just sit for like two hours and do nothing but pray quietly, and then we'll, we'll encounter God that way. All in all, there's nothing really wrong with that. You can take it too far in either direction, but um, I'll re I have just some brief examples. This is actually from St. Teresa of Avila. Oh, sh rats. I... Okay, so here's one thing that she writes. This is an example of more mystic theology as opposed to more black and white orthodox theology. Now, it seems to me that when God has brought someone to a clear knowledge of the world and of its nature and of the fact that another world, or let us say another kingdom, exists, and that there is a great difference between the one and the other, the way of life and the way of death. Hmm. The one being eternal and the other only a dream, and of what it is to love the creator and what to love the creature. This must be discovered by experience, for it is a very different matter from merely thinking about it and believing it. When one understands by sight and experience what can be gained by the one practice and lost by the other, and what the Creator is and what the creature, and many other things which the Lord teaches to those who are willing to devote themselves to being taught, notice the passive language, to being taught by Him in prayer, or whom His Majesty wishes to teach, then one loves very differently from those of us who have not advanced thus far. That's a little bit more of mystic theology, but that's really good, you see. So there's good balance. Now, this is other one. This I have to be really careful with, Meister Eckert. I love Meister Eckert. I think he's cool, but he was branded a heretic. Uh, although he contested the heresy charges, we don't need to get into that. A lot of people don't like Meister Eckert, and that's fine. I kind of do like him. So I have a passage from him to read to you, too. God in things is activity reality, and power. But in the soul, he is procreative. For creatures are only God's footprints, but by nature the soul is patterned after God himself. This pattern must be adorned and fulfilled by divine conception, and no other creature except the soul is adapted to such a function. Now, you can't tell me that that's not beautiful. Nature is the footprint of God, but the soul is the image of God. That's beautiful. Okay, so that's sort of mysticism. But it's, it is really different reading that than it is reading orthodoxy. So Scheffler goes off, he discovers mystics, one in particular from the Lutheran Church, who actually was a heretic. Uh, ooh, bad. <laughs> basically denied the atonement uh, and was like an, another form of Arianism, saying that Jesus was just created by God. The Son was created by the Father, which is bad. 
So then he sort of went down that route and then got angry that his Lutheran friends and his father didn't like what he was reading. So he left the Lutheran church and he became a Roman Catholic, actually. A lot of the, a lot of the really notable mystic theologians are Roman Catholics. St. Teresa of Avila was a Roman Catholic. Uh, and St. John of the Cross is another really big name, and he is Roman Catholic as well, but his stuff is good. So he went to the Roman Catholic Church. He converted in 1653. All through that time, he was still practicing medicine, and then he went off to a court uh, in uh, Breslau that didn't like his Catholicism or his views, and was, he, he just kind of left that place. And then when he retired from medicine, he went off to a monastery and just said, the rest of my life in retirement, I'm just going to spend here in peace and quiet and tranquility at this monastery, and I'm just going to spend the rest of my life praying, which honestly seems kind of like a nice life. And uh, this is really famous. He died at that monastery, the St. Matthias Monastery in Breslau. And um, this is the prayer that he prayed. It's very famous when he died. Jesus and Christ... God and man, bridegroom and brother, peace and joy, sweetness and pleasure, refuge and redemption, heaven and earth, eternity and time, love and all, receive my soul. That's a neat little prayer. So that's what that, he made that prayer famous because that's what he prayed when he died. Now, this hymn, uh, Ich will dich lieben, Eight stanzas with six lines. The rhyme stanza is A, B, A, B, C, C. And the stanzas all began with Ich will dich lieben. And uh, you really only see that. I have two translations here because these are the two big ones. One is the John Wesley translation, uh, brother of Charles. And he did a lot of him translating, actually. John Wesley did. And then the other one is the Catherine Winkworth translation, which is the one you are familiar with because she, uh, she's the one that did the translations in the Lutheran church, or that are used in the Lutheran church, I should say. But anyway, so uh, you see in your hymnal, the Catherine Winkworth translation, Thee Will I Love, Thee Will I Love, those first two stanzas, that's, that's doing her best to maintain what the German actually says of the original because it all began, thee will I love, thee will I love, 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 love. Ich, uh, ich, ich will dich lieben. Okay. The poem was published in 1657 with a group of other poems and other literature that Scheffler put out. Um, the tune that we use is this one from uh, Balthasar König is his name. I don't really know much about him and I didn't look because I knew we weren't going to have time to talk about him today. But uh, no doubt we will find another tune by him. The tune is the same name as the text. Ich will dich lieben. The, the metric structure of the Winkworth translation is 989886. Okay. Wesley's is different. Now, uh, a couple things that I want you to note. In the text, It'll come through in the Winkworth translation and in the Wesley translation, but they come through differently. You notice language from Song of Solomon, this kind of, if it's all about loving, then you know you have to bring in Song of Solomon. So there are elements from Song of Solomon in the hymn. There are also elements from, oh yes, St. Augustine, my boy. St. Augustine's work, The Confessions. If you have never read St. Augustine's Confessions, 
do it and actually wait to do it because I have a version of it that we're going to be getting for the library here that is easy to read and it has notes and things to help you do it because sometimes it can be a little bit difficult but it's beautiful it's basically one big giant confession of how terrible he was how horribly he lived how much he struggled with sin and questioning why is it God that you even love me for who I am and then it's almost in that sense like a love poem as well because he says uh, there's a really famous line my soul does not rest until it rests in thee my soul does not rest until it rests in thee I am restless in my life I am a sinner I know that I can't do things but it isn't until you have found me O Lord that I finally found rest and so he laments the fact that he was such a miserable, he was a really delinquent child. He, he talks, tells a story about one time he and his friends went to the market and they stole pears from a vendor. They just snuck in and they stole a bunch of pears and ran away and they thought it was really fun. And he said, I don't know why we stole the pears. We weren't hungry and we didn't even eat the pears. We just threw them out. I stole them just because I wanted to do something bad. And, I, and, as an, and he said, now looking back at it, after having encountered Christ, I have no idea how to atone for that. What kind of a person thinks to do that? You know, just lamenting that and talking. It's, it's beautiful, beautiful. You should read it. So there's hints of that in here. Scheffler talks about you know, being a sinner and then converting late in life. And part of that is a, a, not, a not so thinly veiled reference to him converting to Catholicism late in life. And then there are also uh, references to the joy of love just for the sake of love. Loving somebody just for the sake of loving. I'm not expecting to get anything out of it. I just want to love you. That's all. And even if you hate me, that's okay. I just want to love you. So that's a Christian view of, of love. Now let's look at this text really quickly. You can see that there's a difference. The first stanzas are very similar um, between Wesley and Winkworth. Now when you turn it over, uh, that's where the similarities end. Wesley's is vastly different you can see that he was not as concise with one of his verses and he broke up a Scheffler verse into two and that's why there's one more stanza in the Wesley translation than in the Winkworth trans translation. He, Wesley is a little more wordy and you can tell the difference between Wesley's and Winkworth's. Winkworth's really is about the Lord and Wesley's is all about the Lord and how much I burn for him. See? Uh, which is fine, it's just not as prevalent in our tradition. And it's fine to a degree. Wesley's is also set to a different tune, so the meter is not the same as the Winkworth translation. Now here's one that I really want you to look at, stanza four. And Bill, you've got your TLH out, and I don't, I didn't, I don't have mine. So I don't know if stanza four, as I have it, oh, thanks. I don't know if stanza four is the same here. It's five. It is. Yeah. It's five. So this is another point in the TLH's favor and another demerit from the LSB. Because chapter, uh, stanza four, I love this. Oh, keep me watchful then and humble and suffer me no more to stray. I like the language of suffer. That's like the old King James language. And you know, Jesus says, let the little children come to me, but that's really not a good translation because it really is suffer them to come to me, which means, yes, I know they are an infant. Saying let them come to me says the disciples are just forbidding them. You know, I just don't like kids. You don't get to go see Jesus. 
But when he says, suffer them to come to me, he says, I know that they're an inconvenience, and I know they're wrecking our schedule, and I know they're loud and kind of messy, and they run around, and they're out of control. I know all of that, and I still want them to come. Suffer them to come. It's a completely different meaning. This is why people shouldn't mess with this stuff. I hate it when they mess with something that's good, and they, they try to make it better, and they make it worse. Uphold me when my feet would stumble. That's what you pray in the Lord's Prayer. Lead me, nor let me loiter by the way. That is my favorite line in this whole stanza. Don't let me loiter on the way. What is loitering? Yes, hanging around doing nothing. Emphasis there on doing nothing and on the way, or by the way. So here I am, I'm by the way, I'm on the way. Should I loiter on the way? Am I born to stand there? Do I go to the hiking trail to take a picture of it and say, boy, that's a nice looking trail, and then go home? No, you go to do. You're on the way to live. You're not on the way to stand around doing nothing. You're on the way to do something. It's beautiful. Fill all my nature with thy light. Everything that I am, oh, radiant, strong, and bright. Now. Here's the LSB. There's a lot of strengths in here, by the way, so don't think that this is me just taking cheap shots. I'm taking a very fair shot here because they changed something that was very good and they made it into something that is not good. Oh, keep me watchful then and humble. Fine, the same. Permit me nevermore to stray. Mm, it's not the same. Suffer me no more to stray means that the Lord is patient with you even when you are straying. And it's obvious there that you don't want to stray, but the, the deeper reality there is the Lord knows you are going to stray. Keep on, suffer me no more to stray. Don't let it happen. Okay? Permit me no more. Well, then did the Lord permit you to stray before? Suffer me. Okay, you're, you're going astray, grieves the Lord. But here it's, well, permit. It's not the same. Uphold me when my feet would stumble. Yes, okay. And keep me on the narrow way. Uh, but you see, fill all my nature with thy light, O radiant, strong, and bright. Okay, that's fine too. But you see, what is the problem? I want to see if you can think about this the way, that I, the way that I do and why it makes me angry. Uphold me when my feet would stumble and keep me on the narrow way. What's the difference between nor let me loiter by the way and keep me on the narrow way? What's the difference between the two? Okay, sure, they're with you, guiding you. It's, yeah, it's, it's about not falling off, really. Keep me on the narrow way so I don't fall off. Okay. But saying not loitering means there's the expectation that you're going to do something. This is the problem I have with it. Because you'll find in many of the translations that they changed for the LSB, they changed the language so that it's not telling you you have to do anything. 
because these, these older translations say you have to live like a Christian. I'm not supposed to loiter on the way, and you're not. That's true. But then they say, well, we're Lutherans are about grace. We're not about works, so we're going to change it so that there, you couldn't possibly think it's about works. Just keep me on the narrow way. There's a problem. That's something we call antinomianism. Anti being against nomianism, nomos, law. Anti-law. Antinomianism says, well, you're freed from the law and you live by grace, which means there's really no more need for the law because the only thing the law is going to do is tell you you're a sinner and you're forgiven, so you don't need the law anymore. And especially you don't need the law to tell you that you're supposed to live like a Christian. So we don't need to have that in the hymn. But it's bad. Okay? So the TLH has a better translation. Now, Let's look at this. I have two treats for you. One is this fella from Germany playing the guitar. Here's the tune. I actually need this. His nice voice, I, and this, I don't mean any offense to you, because I know that if there's anyone here that would take offense, it would be you. I really think German is not a pretty language to listen to. It just doesn't have that poetic ring. I, I, I gave you a warning that I was, uh, because, you know, it's just, it's, 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 it's got hard corners on it. German is a, it's a hard corner language, and it's not like Italian, da, 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 da. it's not sing-songy, it's just kind of, Ich liebe Lily Marlene was sung in German. Pardon me? You'll have to hear Lily Marlene sung in German. Well, if it means that it's going to redeem the sung language of German, then I'll look forward to hearing her. All right, now here's just, this is closer to... This, I also wanted you to see it for this. Look at this guy. <laughs> Don't be that guy. Pardon me? They are, but it's... He looks like, oh, I can't believe we have to sing another hymn. And you might be thinking that. <laughs> okay. Let's sing just the first stanza and then we'll be done. This. Uh, starts differently than both of these recordings because we're holding the first note. Dum, bum, bum, bum. Okay? We're up here. Thee will I love my strength, my tower. Thee will I love my hope, my joy. Thee will I love with all my power. With harder times shall ne'er destroy. Thee will I love, O light divine, so long as life is mine. 
Thank you. We'll see you at the altar.